Well, last week uh, we were in Matthew in chapter 19, and it became apparent to me really about Friday, which thankfully rarely happens, that I had two sermons. And so last week we talked about being eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom, those who are called to lifelong singleness and some who are called to singleness for a season. And I realized I had a little more application that just wouldn't fit unless we we're going to be here till 2 p.m. last week. So I want to spend that time today. If you're a guest, though, this isn't normal at all. This, this sermon is very abnormal for what we normally do here at Southside. Normally we just walk through, the, right now we're in the Gospel of Matthew, a book of the Bible, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. And this sermon will be very different from that. So just FYI. I want to look at the topic of dating. Dating for the glory of God. So what better way than to start with some banger Christian pickup lines. <laughs> God's word says to meditate on the pure and lovely. So my mind's been on you all day long. <laughs> you put the stud in Bible study. <laughs> Favorite. Hi, my name is Will. God's will. Are you related to Abraham's nephew? Because I like you a lot. Your name must be Grace because you're irresistible. Only the, only the Calvinists in the room will get that joke. Your name must be Faith because you're evidence of the things I've hoped for. Hey, girl. I was reading through numbers this morning, and it dawned on me that I didn't have yours. <laughs> I'm actually going to be advocating something nearly the opposite of that approach this morning. So we've been in Matthew, and we've been calling this series in chapter 18 and 19, Re-Education in the Values of the Kingdom. Jesus comes, he brings the kingdom, he preaches the gospel of the kingdom, he lives, he teaches, he dies a substitutionary death in our place that we might have our sins forgiven, and then he's raised and installed as king of the world, and he wields his royal scepter through his word. And so we submit to King Jesus, and we represent him, and we spread his rule on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we show the world what it looks like to be a forgiven people who live under the rule of King Jesus. Not surprisingly, the values of the kingdom look different than the values of the world. The church is to look different than the world. And earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said we should expect hostility. We should expect persecution. He said we're the salt of the earth. We're distinct. And if salt loses its salt, and he said, what good is it? Jesus said, except to be thrown out and trampled. We are the light of the world. Light is starkly different than darkness, isn't it, right? And so we're to be a contrast society, a counter-cultural people. We're to be different, even weird. And so what have we looked at? Well, we looked at children in Matthew 18 at the beginning. We looked at greatness. We've looked at church discipline. We've looked at forgiveness. We've looked at divorce. We've looked at singleness. And now we want to look at dating for the glory of God. If you're married, please don't check out. You may have kids, grandkids, spiritual children that you should be or could be discipling. So as always, we hear the word for our instruction and edification, but also so that we might pass it on to others. So just because you may be past dating, please don't check out of this sermon. Use it to disciple others. A little bit about terminology. What do we call it? Dating, friendship dating, intentional dating, dating with a view to marriage. The old school call it courtship, kingdom courtship. No term is perfect, 
But I like courtship because historically, it's been distinct from dating in a few ways. Typically, courtship involves the man's initiation, her father's blessing, community involvement, and maybe most importantly, an aim to marriage. Some have said the difference between dating and courtship is that in dating, intimacy precedes commitment, while in courtship, commitment precedes intimacy. And we, in our day, we tend to be a pretty non-historical people, and nowadays schools are rewriting history. So it's important to remind ourselves that what is common today regarding dating actually has very little historical precedent. It's very new in the history of the world. Historically, most of you know, marriages were often arranged. When, when they weren't arranged, and I'm certainly not advocating that, but social and financial considerations loomed large, larger than romantic ones. But today we live in a, a post romanticism world, a post-Rousseau world. Now, some of you may never even heard of the name Jean-Jacques Rousseau, even though we breathe his spirit in the air every single day. He was reacting to Kant and the Enlightenment and that cold rationalism and said, you know, forget all the reason. We need to move to feeling. We need to move to passion. We need to move to emotion. So it was a counter-enlightenment movement, and it was say, let's get rid of reason and structures and authority, and let's turn into the subjective self. Does that sound familiar? A shift from reason and authority to the individual and emotions. A turn inward, which is, again, where we are today. Ideas have consequences. It's important to know Rousseau, many consider him to be the father of modern educational theory. Very influential man. Uh, wrote a book on education and kids. He actually had five children and he abandoned all of them to a Parisian orphanage with a very, very low rate. 25% or so of survival. Ideas have consequences. So now, feelings are king. Romance is king. Feelings are determinative. So this modern, what we know of as dating, the modern recreational dating seems very new in world history. And it consists of emotional attachments and usually leaving the father out of the picture almost always involves premarital sex. And we can't be naive about this in the church. Almost always. By the mid-20th century, dating had little to do with finding a suitable marriage partner. It became a recreation activity. For guys, and this is me, I wasn't converted in high school. It ended up being a status thing. It becomes a competition. And it's just normal now to us to fall in love, go steady, be physically intimate, break up, and then start the cycle over. Vody Bauckham calls it glorified divorce practice. And we just take it for granted today, but you need to know it's very new. Very new, completely unknown before the 20th century. So we moved from friendship and character assessment to going out and having fun. Dating's almost exclusively based on emotion, while stable marriages must be built on committed love. And of course, today, people are delaying marriage later than ever. It gets later every year. It just keeps climbing. Now it's 30 years old for men, 29 for women, usually an intentional delay, not always. The age of puberty, meanwhile, has lowered. Married adults plunged from 59% in 1960 to 20% in 2010. And now, especially on college campuses, hookups are the norm. Hookups are these random, often one-time sexual encounters. Around the turn of the millennium or so, young people started, you know what, dating's too much work, 
and hookup culture emerge, which is clearly inappropriate for kingdom people. And the pressure's hard. Me parents of teens know what I'm saying. The pressure's tough. Everyone's doing it, right? Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Not always, but usually, if everybody's doing it, it's not the will of God. And so let's see what wisdom we can glean from God's word when it comes to biblical courtship. And again, the sermon's not just for those who are seeking a spouse. In some ways, as the more I prepared, I almost wanted to aim it more towards parents. And not just parents of teens, but parents of elementary kids and babies to be thinking through this now and establishing norms now. And, of course, those who will marry one day may be off in the future. Parents of teens, let me just say it. Your kids, your teens don't need to be dating. The cons far outweigh the pros. It's hard to come up with God-honoring pros. Study after study plus lived experience shows that early dating is associated with early sexual activity, which in God's word is clearly sin against a holy God. Youth are in a vulnerable season, and romance is powerful. Here's how one social scientist put it. He says, willfully and repeatedly placing oneself in intimate, private, affectionate contact with someone whom one is deeply attracted to is not a wise pathway to holiness. This is especially the case when one is immature, inexperienced, perhaps years away from marriage in a relationship that is completely disconnected from it. To believe otherwise is to be hopelessly naive or blindly arrogant. So my opinion is that if you can't see yourself married in about a year and a half, why would you date? To awaken emotional and physical desires... Two, three, four, five, eight, ten years before they can be fulfilled in a way that honors God is foolish, irresponsible, and dangerous. Again, here's what Ayers puts it, this sociologist. Immaturity coupled with heightened opportunity and temptation to have sex is a bad combination. Thus, it's not surprising that earlier dating is associated with early sex. Parents, there's a, there's a better way. Historically and biblically, adults were involved. Now it's just a peer-run system. Couples removed from the family, removed from the community. And we now, as parents, we've just been conditioned by the culture to take a back seat. And biblically, we need to be in the driver's seat. You're responsible for God if you're a parent. Dads in particular are responsible. So we've got a little bit of vestige of this left in our wedding ceremonies. So the man comes up and I ask, who gives this woman to be married to this Man, in the Bible, sons leave, but daughters are given. Genesis 2, man leaves, cleaves to his wife. Let me just read some passages. Now, these passages are from the Old Covenant. We're not directly bound to the Old Covenant as New Covenant Christians, but notice the principle here in some of these passages from God's law. In Deuteronomy 7, God commands fathers not to give daughters to pagan households. The husband's involved, determinative even, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3. Listen to Ezra saying something very similar in Ezra chapter 9. 
And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we've forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure, with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons. Neither take their daughters for your sons and never seek their peace or prosperity. They may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for inheritance to your children forever. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 22. So it's early on in your book, in your Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 13. Parents are responsible, in fact, specifically fathers are responsible, especially for their daughters. Sons leave, daughters are given. Deuteronomy 22, 13, not a passage you're going to find on a coffee cup. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 13, 22, 13. If, if any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city and the gates. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he's accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity, and yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. They shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city, and then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him, and they shall fine him a hundred shekels of silver, Give them to the father of the young woman, because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel. And she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. But if the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house. And the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she's done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst." Now, there's a lot to say about this passage, but what I want you to see is this principle of the father's responsibility, even for his daughter's purity. The buck stops at dad's door. Fathers are to govern and oversee their children. In other words, I know this is going to sound crazy, but God expects parents to parent. Sons leave and daughters are given. Listen to Exodus chapter 22, verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who's not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Again, God gives the father the ultimate right of approval or refusal. Dads, this is your responsibility, and it's got to start when they're two years old. Flip back a little bit to the book of Numbers. So right before Deuteronomy, Numbers chapter 30. Looking at fatherly responsibility when it comes to dating. Numbers chapter 30, verse 3. Numbers 30, verse 3. If a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by a pledge while within her father's house in her youth 
And her father hears of her vow and of her pledge by which she's bound herself and says nothing to her. Then all her vows shall stand and every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father opposes her on the day that he hears of it, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. And the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her. Again, just notice that the father is responsible to protect his daughter. From rash vows, dad, you are the guardian. You are her protector. You are the one tasked with approving of a credible suitor. And so young men, that means as you pursue a woman, you need to pursue her father. Let's rework that pickup line. Hey, girl, I've been reading the book of Numbers. Realized I didn't have yours. Can I have your dad's? (laughs) Sounds weird, right? It's the biblical principle. And here in our day and age... The dad probably is not going to have a clue. He's probably not going to care. But it's your responsibility because there are some that do care. When I called Alicia's, it was her stepdad. I don't know. I trust her judgment. Seems weird, but here's a clear biblical principle. We're different. We're distinct. We do dating differently. We're a counterculture. We're at odds with the ways of the world. How so? Well, let's... Consider nine tips for dating for the glory of God. Number one, work on you. How to pursue a spouse in a way that honors God. Number one, work on you. The culture says you do you. The Bible says work on you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for him. Mark Chansky in his book Manly Dominion says marital ripeness, being ready, and eligibility entails multiple factors, including spiritual maturity, emotional seasoning, educational advancement, vocational readiness, and financial capability. And so prepare yourself now for those responsibilities and the responsibilities of marriage. The most important ingredient of which is your holiness. Who you are as a single, you will be as married. There's no sanctification by ceremony. Negative traits outside of marriage will be intensified inside of marriage. Do you have self-control? It's one of the most important foundational virtues of a healthy marriage. Self-control. Do you have emotional self-control? Do you have self-control with your words? Self-control with spending? Self-control over lust? Work on you, men. Do you have a plan? Do you have a life plan? you have a vision for marriage, for the home, for your vocation, for how you're going to provide for a family? Work on it. I recently finished a book by Doug Wilson called Get the Girl, How to Be the Kind of Man, the Kind of Woman You Want to Marry Would Want to Marry. There it is. How to Be the Kind of Man, the Kind of Woman You Want to Marry Would Want to Marry. Ladies, do you have self-control? Do you have a handle on your words? Proverbs are replete with this warning about being married to a woman who doesn't have self-control with her words. Proverbs 19.13, a wife's quarreling is as annoying as a constant dripping. Proverbs 21.9 and 25.24, it's better to live alone in the corner of an attic than with a quarrelsome wife. Proverbs 21.19, it's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and complaining wife. Proverbs 27.15, a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. Have self-control with your words. First, work on you. Be godly. Pursue him. Pursue holiness. Be interesting. The longer we live, the, the more boring we become if we don't act otherwise. 
So stay interesting. Continue to learn. Be available. Be attractive. Enlarge your relational network. Acquire some skills. Sharpen your spiritual gifts. Keep learning. Become well-read. Be ready. Work on you. Number two, mentioned this last week, begin premarital counseling long before you begin courting. Mentioned last week how we ought to start extremely early because for those who will marry, being a husband or wife is way more important than whatever their, their particular vocation happens to be. And so prepare. Do your part to prepare. Proverbs says the horse is made ready for the battle. Victory belongs to the Lord. And a long quote I want to share from the Puritan Richard Baxter. If God call you to a married life, expect all these troubles, or most of them, and make particular preparation for each temptation, cross, and duty which you must expect. Think not that you're entering into a state of mere delight, lest it prove but a fool's paradise for you. See that you be furnished with marriage strength and patience for the duties and sufferings of a married state before you venture into it. To marry without all this preparation is as foolish as to go to sea without the necessary preparations for your voyage or to go to war without armor or ammunition or to go to work without the tools or strength or to go to buy meat in the market when you have no money. Begin training now. Make every effort to succeed. Marriage is hard. We spend way too much time on the wedding and not near enough on the marriage. Proverbs 24, 27, do your planning and prepare your fields before building your house. And so before even courting, begin reading books and listening to podcasts and attending seminars and spending time with godly married couples and asking them questions and hanging out with healthy families. And then once you begin courting, continue to train, get formal Premarital counseling, take our before you are one class. Train for marriage long before marriage. Number three, don't even consider a non-Christian. It's just not an option, not for a second. Paul says we're to marry only in the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 6, he says, what does we, can't, we shouldn't be unequally yoked for what does righteousness have to do with lawlessness? And what does light have to do with darkness? What does Christ have to do with demons? So we don't do that. Listen, if Jesus is central for you, they can't possibly even understand what makes you tick. If your aim in life is, to quote the catechism, glorify God and enjoy him forever, that's going to affect every decision you make. And that person won't understand any of it. Won't understand or worse, won't agree. So don't consider a non-Christian. Number four, not only find a Christian, find someone sold out for the Lord. Don't just look for Christians, look for zealous Christians. Again, because Christian character, godliness is what matters most in marriage. Make sure Christ is the center of your compatibility. Tolstoy said, what counts in making a happy marriage is not so much how compatible you are, but how you deal with incompatibility. In other words, Christian character. Don't fall into the culture's idolatry of beauty and money. Find someone who loves Jesus and makes you want to love Jesus more. Because listen, not being married is by far preferable to being in a bad marriage. It's hard enough for two sanctified people. And so look for someone who's pursuing the Lord. Focus on their holiness. The Proverbs say that charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. What are most people looking for? Charm and beauty. <laughs> someone hot and funny. 
Someone smart, witty, and handsome. And the Bible says those things will deceive you and they will fade. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. That's bad material to build a marriage on. Your foundation needs to be way more solid than that because it'll fade, right? They're going to get ugly. That six-pack will turn into a dad bod eventually. The forehead will turn into a six-head. That sweet breath will become donkey breath. Those toned legs will become cottage cheese. Gravity is coming for us all. It fades. It's fleeting. The Bible says outwardly we're wasting away. And for those who know the Lord, though, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. And so focus on the fear of the Lord, ladies. Man, focus on that inward beauty that 1 Peter says is imperishable. The imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in God's sight. Don't focus on the externals but the internals. Proverbs says that like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. That gold ring doesn't make a pig pretty. Now, I'm not saying attraction doesn't matter. We're not Gnostics here, those who think that only the spiritual matters. No, you need to be attracted to her. It just doesn't need to be the main thing. You need to be attracted to him. It just can't be the primary issue. You need to have a relationship built on something stronger than mere physical attraction. And ladies, nowadays, I just assume that you won't find, it just pains me to say this, but I just assume that you won't find a man who has not been looking at pornography. Just an assumption of mine from limited pastoral experience, and you want to have that conversation early. And if he's not dead set about repentance and slaying that dragon, move on. Why do I say that? Well, because he's going to bring it into your bedroom. That stuff will have numbed his conscience. He'll, have been a tra- he'll be trained to be attracted to something that is not reality. He'll be trained to objectify fake women, treating them as objects to conquer. His view of what the bedroom will entail will be distorted and corrupts. His view of what you will desire and act like is not reality. In fact, is degrading. And if it hasn't stopped before marriage, it will not stop after marriage. Marriage is not a solution to the problem of lust. Find someone sold out for the Lord, serious about repentance. Fifth, look for someone who loves the word of God. Love for God is evidenced by a love for his word. An unashamed love of his word, all of it, all of God's word for all of life. If they're embarrassed by any part of God's word, move on. That's not going to end well. Theological compatibility is so vitally important. So, again, early on, have intentional conversations. Ask the hard questions. Theological disagreements aren't a big deal over coffee. But when it comes to marriage and making day-to-day practical decisions, they become a real big deal real fast. And in particular, what is their view of family and marriage and of gender roles? Do they understand what Scripture teaches from cover to cover? Men, you don't want someone who is going to try to lead over you and rule you, as Genesis 3.16 says, and won't follow your lead. And ladies, you don't want a man with no vision or direction or leadership. You want a man who knows the weight of his calling before God. You don't want a man who's going to be like Adam, abdicating his responsibility. And in this vein, men, you need to lead out. You need to initiate this whole process. None of this like, hey, I've kind of been thinking about us. What do you think about us? 
Take a risk, man. That's actually asking her to lead, right? You initiate. Some of you know my story with Alicia. I call it pursuit. Some of you have called it textbook stalking. <laughs> but I met her actually at a, at a college event at Southside Baptist Church. And so I'm, I'm, I'm struck. I'm attracted physically, so I'm just listening. She's over here sitting down, and I'm just listening, and I hear that she's at a new apartment. She says where it's at. And so I met, take a mental note of that, and I think it's about a week later or so, I randomly end up there. And you may say she should have called the cops, but 16 years and five kids later, it worked all right, okay? <laughs> Pursuit. I took a risk, though. It was a risk. <laughs> Could have ended up in handcuffs. <laughs> but next to trusting Christ, it was the best decision I've ever made. So, man, you got to lead out. you got to initiate. I saw a study this week by the Institute for Family Studies that shows that compared to men who did not make the first move, Men who did are much more likely to say that they're happy with their marriage now, later. 70% to 46%. It'll go well with you if you lead. Number six, take your time. Take your time. Healthy marriages are built on more than emotions. Those are like flickering flames. They're built on Christ and the character that flows from a life built on Christ. Again, so much modern dating is totally unrealistic. It's so easy because it's just a round of restaurants and entertainments. It's easy to fake it for a long time, to put up a front. Again, Marchansky says this, the contemporary dating game caters not to the rational, but to the emotional. It calculatedly whisks a couple off to a make-believe world, theater, restaurant, sports arena, detaching the couple from family and practical life. There each can become a play actor where he or she can impersonate the ideal dating partner and creatively register the desired romantic impression. Fathers, do not conform to the world around you. So... Take your time. Get to know their character. Number seven, get community input when seeking a spouse. Watch them in groups. Watch them with their family. Involve parents. Involve the church. Spend lots of time together with family and with church. Proverbs eleven fourteen: where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in the abundance of counselors, there's safety. Proverbs 15, 22, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Proverbs 24, 6, for by wise guidance, you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors, there is victory. So figure out a way to be in community. Some of you have met people online. One of the biggest challenges to online is this. You need somehow figure out a way to have the contribution of community. See that it happens. Eighth. And this is where I was just so discouraged the last few weeks. Guard your purity and guard their purity. Have high walls. Don't spend time alone. Don't make out. Are you crazy? This is playing with fire. Late at night, lights off, hormones raging alone. You'll fail. Be private in public. And if you're asking how far is too far, you've probably gone too far. Again, I realize how countercultural this sounds. Sadly, it's now even counter-church culture. Nowadays, the majority of evangelicals are okay with it and practice it. Let me just repeat some of the stats I shared. Major studies, the Survey for Family Growth, CDC funded in 2019, 
only 40% of 18 to 29-year-old evangelicals, that's Bible-believing Christians, 40%, only 40% think that fornication is always wrong. The same number, minus one, 39% of conservative Protestants think there's nothing wrong with fornication at all. It's astounding. We've lost our moral compass. Only three of ten evangelical men have remained virgins by 22. 37% of female evangelicals have had three or more partners by age 22. We've got a problem. Well, we need to be different in this church. We need to take God at his word. So guard your purity by thinking about God's word, by thinking about your brother or sister in Christ, and by thinking about future conversations with your spouse. First, guard your purity by thinking about God's word. It's just so clear. Galatians 5, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, orgies, things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is that not astounding if 40% say it's totally fine and God's word says it will send you to hell? Church, we got a problem. Ephesians 5, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. As is proper among saints, 1 Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who know not God. 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. You're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Friends, this ought to be just basics of how we're different. It's where we seek purity. And we flee from that stuff. So guard your purity by taking God seriously, but also by considering your sister or your brother in Christ. Here's what I mean. There are really only two categories of people. So when you're thinking about pursuing a spouse, that person is either your wife or your sister in Christ. That person is either your husband or your brother in Christ. Not sort of your spouse and sort of your sister. Not Arkansas, after all. No great areas really here. First Timothy 5, treat young women as sisters with all purity. It's really helpful, isn't it, when you get those categories right? Until you say, I do, it's your sister in Christ. It's your brother in Christ. And so you treat them like a brother or sister. And you don't treat them like a spouse until you say, I do. There's no gray area. That's the category. Another way of thinking about all this, this, this aspect of it, this purity stuff, is the stuff, all the stuff that you've been tempted to do before crossing a line, all the physical stuff. The difference between non-married couples and married couples is that married couples have a name for that stuff. We've got mixed audience here. I'll just say that it starts with F-O-R-E, and the second word rhymes with clay. Married couples have a name for that stuff. F-O-R-E means for. It means beforehand, right? That stuff happens before something else happens. It's an on-ramp. It's where you come up to speed. And so if you're not married, you have no business getting on the ramp. You know, on-ramps aren't made for that. On-ramps aren't made for, you know, you start to get up speed, let me stop, turn around, and go back. If you're not, not married, then you don't belong on the on-ramp. It's that simple. She's your sister or wife, your brother or your husband's. 
changes the way you see things, doesn't it? Again, I know I sound so weird and old school up here. Alicia and I didn't even kiss before we were married. We didn't kiss. And you know what? We didn't kiss till we said I do. And you know what? Our relationship lost nothing for doing that. In fact, it gained everything. Our relationship was based upon Christ. It wasn't based upon physicality. And so we waited till right here. In fact, it was right here. Some of y'all didn't know that. We were married right here. And so I'm, on the wedding video, you can see, it wasn't even on my mind. It was about you know, halfway through, I realized that I'm about to get to kiss her. You can literally see, you can literally, this is not a joke, you can see my posture shift. I'm like right here, about halfway through, I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and we went right back there, and they used to be covered, and we just made out for about 10 minutes. Sister, wife, brother, husband. And then third, guard your purity by considering your future spouse. You know, you may be courting someone who you don't end up marrying. May not work out, and so practice the golden rule. If someone is dating your future spouse, how do you want them to be treating him or her? With all purity, right? You want them to be respecting you. And so practice the golden rule. Prioritize friendship development over romantic development. You want to go into your wedding clean, pure. And so now envision that future conversation that you'll have with your spouse that may not be the person in front of you. And you want that to, you want that to be a healthy conversation. You want to be able to say, I honored you by guarding my purity then. You don't want there to be shame in that conversation. You want to honor him or her on that day. Now listen, I realize it's too late for that for many of you. That was my case as well, and I just want you to know there's more mercy in Christ than sin in you. You're, you're forgiven. This is why we're Christians. If you've trusted in Christ, there is no condemnation. You're not defined by your past. Accept forgiveness, and sometimes that can be hard. Accept forgiveness. Sometimes, though, it also means accepting consequences and preach the gospel. Fight condemnation. And resolve to be pure from here on out. And I shouldn't even have to say this, but based on statistics, I feel like I need to. Christians don't cohabitate. Cohabitation is the attempt to get the benefits of marriage without the responsibility. There is no try before you buy in the kingdom of Christ. And again, it's countercultural. So I'm telling you this also just for the sake of your discipleship. Just a few years ago in 2017, there were almost 8 million heterosexual couples cohabitating in the United States of America. It's just the new norm. And again, Christians are finding it okay. 40% of evangelicals think it's a good idea. 40% think it's a good idea. The church has lost its moral compass today. It's not a Christian option. It's filled with ambiguity and uncertainty. What are we anyway? And it's bad for your future marriage. And sometimes you need to end it, and it's a whole lot harder to end it. A study after study shows that it actually doesn't help your marriage. It hinders your marriage. Roughly two-thirds of couples who cohabit in the U.S. will eventually end in divorce. Study after study shows that couples who marry after cohabitating will have marriages of less quality, less stability, more diverse. Guard purity. Again, men, this is on you. You lead out on this. Guard her purity. She is God's daughter long before she's your girlfriend. Don't mistreat the daughter of God. Guard her purity. And you need to know, both of you need to know, right here you think it's just fine. But what happens right here? When passion meets integrity... Passion one. Who's to say that won't happen again in 5, 10, 15 years? Go with integrity. 
find a man or a woman who loves you, loves God too much to compromise purity and build high walls. Be wise to keep yourself pure. And then ninth and finally, don't get hung up on the one. You know what I'm talking about. The one, the lie of almost every chick flick. This idea that God has the one out there and your job is to go find him or her and there is a possibility that you could mess it up. (laughs) I think we're often handicapped by this false doctrine. God does have a will of decree. God does declare the end from the beginning. God does work all things according to the counsel of his will. The problem is we just don't know it until after the fact. We don't get an opportunity to read providence. Like You know how I know Alicia was the one? Put a ring on it. That's how I know. We know after the fact. We can't read providence. In fact, Deuteronomy 29 says that the revealed things belong to us. The secret things belong to God. And so we focus on God's revealed will in his word. Do they love Jesus? Are they committed members of a local church? Are they making disciples? Do they fear the Lord? Do they love his word? Are you attracted to him? Well, then go for it. The one is off feeding unicorn somewhere. Act on what you know. And it's important to act, right? God doesn't. Steer parked cars. So parents, be heavenly involved. Singles who desire marriage, work on you. Find a Christian. A Christian who loves Christ wholeheartedly. Loves the whole Bible for the whole of life. Take your time. Involve the church. Involve family. Involve community. Guard your purity. Trust God's good providence and act on what he has revealed in his word.